afternoon. Um, I am continuing the church history class, um, and in fact, I'm teaching it during the day this time because um, <clears throat> pretty much the recording didn't work last night, so I am re-recording right now. And so we are moving into the next lesson, which is the apostolic era, which covers the um, covers the years 30 to 100. So connect my remote. You're kidding me. Um, okay, let me see. Not one second. Waiting for my remote to work. Don't know why it's not working. Doesn't make any sense. There's always something. All right, let me stop this stream. And that's going to go straight to our stuff, too. Okay, stop. Church history. I tried to record it last night, but had some uh, technical difficulties, and so um, we're just doing it this morning, going through it this morning or this afternoon now. So, anyhow, um, continuing with um, our course on church history, we're going to be covering the apostolic era. We're going to be covering the years um, 30 to 100. And so, um, pretty much the, the, the way this goes is I'm just going to try to blast through the lifetime of the apostles. So getting right to it, uh, pretty much we're going to cover the witness of the apostles of Christ from the years 30 to 100. Um, and we could break it up into three periods. First, you have the period of Jewish witnessing, which will cover the years 30 to 45. Then we have... Uh, it's spread out to the Roman world by Paul. That'll be from 45 to 67. And then we'll cover after that from 67 to the year 100. Okay. And we know that the church was born probably eight to 10 days. I'll say eight days after Christ ascended. I could give you the math for that at a different time. Um, but, but anyhow, it, Christ ascends. We got maybe eight days. Some would say 10. Uh, but then the Holy Spirit gets poured out upon Jesus's disciples after he ascends. And really what the history of the church is, is the history of the church is the hyphen between Christ's ascension and his return. In Acts chapter 1, verse 9, he takes off from uh, the Mount of Olives. In Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4, talks about the Lord in the eschaton or the end time, stepping back foot on the Mount of Olives, and then all this cataclysmic stuff is going to happen. So really, the history of the church is what happens between the time Jesus took off from the Mount of Olives and when he will land there again. Now, the main source that or main sources the information in this lesson comes from, by and large, is the New Testament. That covers a lot of this. But then also there's some stuff from Josephus and the church father Clement that will cover some of the periods that are not covered by the New Testament. OK, and so. Again, the history of the church is the delay of the parousia or the second coming of Christ. You've heard me say that before. So we're starting now with what happens right after Christ ascends. And even backtracking just a few days before that, um, we know that when Jesus rose from the dead, he did not appear to his enemies, but only his disciples. Acts chapter 1 verse 3 tells us that he did this for 40 days um, after his resurrection. And in this time, he taught them about the kingdom of God. He restored Peter. He uh, alleviated the doubts of Thomas. And, uh, and many other signs were performed. John says there's so many that there wouldn't be enough space to write them all down. 
okay? And so after this, after Christ rose from the dead, the disciples were bold because they knew death wasn't, wasn't the end. They knew that uh, our Lord had defeated death and because he lives, we too will live. And ultimately, Jesus is exactly who he said he was. And so what Jesus does then before he ascends to the right hand of the Father is he commands them and us by extension to do what Jesus did not do, which is proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles, to all the nations. And so in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he gives the game plan. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and then the ends of the earth which not only gives you the structure of the book of Acts, but it gives you the structure of the history of the church and how it grows out in concentric circles from Jerusalem. Now, Jesus, in his own ministry, primarily went to the lost sheep of Israel. Okay? Um, he was keeping with the Old Testament promises. That's who the Messiah was coming to. God was going to visit his people in Zion right, and from Zion. Now, with his victory over sin and death, what happened is... Uh, is now the way is open for Gentiles to uh, come and be part of the people of God. And so it's the task of the church, of the body of Christ, to call the elect from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Okay, And so that's what we're here for. In the meantime, Christ reigns at the right hand of the Father. He fills us with the Holy Spirit. So as his spiritual body, we are able to finish the task. And 2,000 years later, we haven't finished it. But we are getting closer, and I pray that our generation will be the one that finishes it. So, the birth of the church. There's some theological debate over this, but historically, it's almost inarguable. I mean, the church was born on the day of Pentecost. You'll have some people, because of their theology, that say the church goes all the way back to Adam and Abraham and all that. And I would say, yeah, the people of God does, but to call that the church is anachronistic. It's premature. The church itself was born on the day of Pentecost because that is when Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit in a unique eschatological way that was only possible after his death, burial, and resurrection. Okay, And so church is born on that specific day, and of course this all makes sense. I mean, Jesus died as the Passover lamb on Passover. He raises as the first fruits of the resurrection on the day of the, first of, uh, uh, on the, day of the feast of first fruits. And then he pours out his Holy Spirit on the church on the very next holiday, which is the day of Pentecost, okay, or Shavuot. Um, so this is, this is what he does, right? Um, and so it begins Pentecost in the year 30. The reason why I'm saying it's the year 30 is, if you remember the last lesson, a lot of reasons why Jesus' ministry started in 26 and 27. And I showed you how through the Gospel of John, it was about three, three and a half year ministry. You do the math, that puts us in the year 30. So in the year 30, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit pours out on the 120 disciples who are in an upper room in Jerusalem. Um, and so that's what's happening there. Then what happens is they stumble out of that room. This whole event draws a crowd because there was a loud wind. It was almost earth-shaking. And so the Jews who were in the temple, they want to know what's going on. A multitude gathers and pretty much the apostles are speaking in the human languages from where all these Jews came from because a lot of these Jews were part of the diaspora. They, they were outside of Israel, but there's three feasts per year you're supposed to come to Jerusalem. And although diaspora Jews didn't always make them, sometimes they did. 
And so a lot of them were there at Pentecost because that was one of those feasts. And so they see this sign, they see this wonder, they start speculating, maybe they're drunk, and then Peter's like, nope, that's not what's going on. And then he preaches an awesome sermon, an amazing sermon um, to all these Jews who are coming from all over the, the world. Okay, and so what you have is you have the foundation of the church. 3,000 people get saved. They get baptized. And so now you have the church. You have the ecclesia. Now, at first, it is a very Jewish ecclesia, a very Jewish one. They were still observant Jews. There is no indication that the apostles at any time of their life rejected Judaism. They never saw Christianity as a new religion that replaces the old. Instead, they were observant Jews. If you were to look at their lifestyle, especially in the earliest years, they were indistinguishable in how they lived and what they practiced from other Jews. Okay? They didn't see, as I said, Christianity as this new replacement religion. Instead, they were convinced that what they were part of was the fulfillment of Judaism's promises that all the hopes and dreams of Judaism have been fulfilled in Jesus, and they have the, the privilege of announcing this and living in, according, uh, living in accordance with it. And so the church was simply Judaism in light of the inbreaking of the Messianic age. In light of what Christ did, this is Judaism in its, its most full and expectant form. Okay, so the church, another thing I, I do want to say about this, going back to this slide for a second, the word ecclesia for the church, um, some people try to make a big deal out of the fact that the, the Greek pagans use this same word um, as their like government assembly. So you'll have a city, you'll have their senate, and it's called an ecclesia. And so some people say, hey, that's what we are of God. You know, we're the ecclesia of the kingdom of God. And so in a sense, we're governing for God on earth. You know, we're, we're his, his political council. And that's just not what this means. It's what it might mean if you're in Athens. But the point is the context of this word, actually, the way it's being used in the New Testament is its Jewish context that comes out of the Septuagint. Remember, the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek and you find ecclesia in the Septuagint, and it's usually a translation of kahal, the kahal Yahweh, the people of God, God's covenant community. That's all ecclesia means. His covenant community are those who now believe in Jesus as Lord, okay? And so that's what ecclesia refers to. The church is what the Hebrews would call the yachad, the community of God. Um, and so they, that's how they understood themselves. This has nothing to do with a post-millennial daydream of us instituting God's rule on earth. That's, that's not the meaning of ecclesia. But anyhow, some people question whether or not the church did have this Jewish character at the beginning, and it most certainly did. You could just look at the book of Acts, right? They kept the Sabbath. Here, let me put these uh, references up for you. They kept the Sabbath, which uh, you could see this in Acts chapter 13, verse 14, chapter 16, verse 13, chapter 17, verse 2. Chapter 18, verse 4, this was the regular custom. It even says this was their regular custom. And they would still go to synagogue. We also see that they attended worship at the temple. Acts chapter 2, verse 46 says they were in the temple daily and meeting house to house daily. Uh, Acts chapter 3, verse 4 has Peter and John going to the temple for the afternoon prayer, which again was a daily occurrence. In Acts chapter 5, verse 42, um, 
I'm trying to remember what happened there with the temple. But the point is, there they are again at the temple. They're oh, they're preaching at that point. Um, they still recited their Jewish prayers. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, this is an interesting one, right? Because if you read your translation, often it says that they were continually devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. But in Greek, it doesn't say prayer. It says prayers. And in fact, it's the prayers, okay? They're dedicated to the prayers. What are the prayers? Well, anybody who knows anything about Judaism knows that, that we Jews have a prayer for everything. A prayer for bread, a prayer for wine, a prayer for going to bed, a prayer for waking up. Um, you name it. And so those prayers, those set prayers were developing around then. Okay. And so they were dedicated to those prayers. And obviously the prayers that Jesus taught them as well, such as the Lord's prayer. Okay. So they were a people dedicated to prayer by being dedicated to the prayers. Again, it would look very Jewish. They practiced Jewish fasting patterns. It tells us that, uh, you know, in Acts chapter 13, verse 2, and in 14, 23, for these big um, events that were coming up, these big decisions that needed to be made, um, or big tasks that they were being called to do, they would fast before it in, in appeal to the Lord, okay? And so what sets them apart from the rest of the Jews, because you might say, okay, well, how are they different? They're different because of Sunday, okay? Clearly, because Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week, um, they added Sunday as a day where they observed the resurrection. It became a day of worship where they observed the resurrection of Christ. This carries on to the Gentile churches. We will see the first of the week mentioned uh, quite often in the New Testament. And so it's the Lord's Day. It didn't replace this other stuff. It was just added on top of it. So, the church is born, you have these 3,000 people, and what Luke is going to describe is nothing short of miraculous, the way that the church grows, okay? It, it, it's all of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, verse 15, there's only 120 disciples in the upper room, maybe three to 400 more in Galilee, okay? Then with Peter's first sermon, in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, it tells us God added, uses the word added, that's significant, God added 3,000. Then in Acts 2.47, it tells us that God continued to add people every day to the church, those who were being saved. And given that they were being added daily, that shows us that Christians weren't just getting together on Sundays. In fact, Acts chapter 2 will tell us they met daily. And because of that, people were being saved daily. And so if you're a Sunday-only Christian, you're not matching the pattern <laughs> that, that we see in the Scriptures. Now, by the time you get to Acts chapter 4, verse 4, and we get Peter's second sermon, we're going to see the number jump up to 5,000 men. Luke specifies that it is men, which means he's leaving out women and children in the count, not because they don't count. He's just keeping the number low. But here's the thing. If you're dealing with 5,000 men, it's fair to assume 20,000 people total because you're going to have wives, you're going to have kids, might have even been bigger than that because they tended to have more kids than than we have today. But let's just say 20,000. It's pretty big after only two sermons. That is miraculous growth. By Acts chapter 5, verse 14, Luke stops counting because it becomes impossible. And pretty much he just tells us that more and more kept being added. Again, there you have that, that, that word um, where the church was being measured by addition. But by the time you get to Acts chapter 6, verse 1, no more addition. Now it's being measured by multiplication. Luke says they're multiplying. The church was multiplying, and, and henceforth he starts talking about the church in terms of multitudes, which are thousands upon thousands, okay? 
And so the church had early success. But as you know, when you have growth like this, you know, and you have the success, you think there's going to be no problems. You have early growth, early strength, but you also have early problems. And so uh, let's talk about those. Uh, 19th century church historian, famous church historian, Philip Schaft, uh, is famous for saying that when God is building the church, the devil builds a chapel next door. And boy, is that ever true. And so there's two kinds of, I guess you could say, problems, attacks that will come. You have external attacks and you have internal. External obviously come from the outside. And so one of the early external attacks was persecution. The Jewish leaders saw Christianity as a threat. They saw Jesus as the resurrected Messiah and the preaching of his name. They saw that as a threat. And so they mounted heavy opposition. In Acts chapter 4, you end up with uh, Peter and John being arrested and, and, and beaten. Uh, in Acts chapter 7, verse 57, or verse 58 and 59, you have the first martyr, Stephen. He gets killed for being a, a believer. In Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, King Herod Agrippa I beheads the first apostle to die. James, uh, son of Zebedee, John's brother, gets killed. First apostle to die um, for the faith. So there was a growing external pressure against the church that was uh, persecution. There's internal problems as well. One internal problem is sin. You have Ananias and Sapphira who were trying to uh, uh, deceive the church so that they could get a position of leadership. Like they saw that Barnabas was generous and then Barnabas gets the accolades for it. So Ananias and Sapphira through deceit tried to do the same thing. And of course, we know what Paul teaches is that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Um, so if they became big shots in the church, with their deceit uh, and their sinful ways spread, that destroys the witness of the church. So God just killed them. You know, he gave Peter the, uh, the special knowledge that they did this sin, and then Peter more or less says, look, this is, you lied to, you lied to God. You conspired with Satan. And so the, the Lord exercises the first church discipline case by killing them. Um, and then pretty much it falls on us to keep the church pure, not through uh, killing, but through excommunication, through the Matthew 18 process. Um, but God showed how important the purity of the church actually is. Um, so you have the first attempt at sin to break in, and, and, and God shows us how to deal with that. Then a second internal problem is going to be more organizational, management-wise. And there's going to be some sin related to that as well. And so I'm going to be talking a little bit about Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, because this is a significant event in the early church. Um, so first I want to hit it from a management standpoint. The church got so big that the apostles could not possibly manage it. I'm sorry. You, Twelve people cannot shepherd 20,000 believers. And likely it was even more than 20,000 by this point. They just can't do it. They needed help. The church's organization needed to improve. It needed to increase. And so we say that these were the first deacons. Some people um, object to that. They say, well, it doesn't technically say they're deacons. Look, the way they're described is very similar to how Paul describes deacons later. But let's say we grant that objection. They're not deacons. Well, then they're proto-deacons. And so still the same point uh, matters. They, they set the paradigm for what later deacons would become. Okay, so that's how they take care of the organizational problem. But I do want to talk more about Acts chapter 6 verses 1 and 7 because it also displays a long-standing prejudice. 
One thing worth uh, noting is that just because a bunch of people get saved, it doesn't mean that their culture's prejudices instantly get eradicated from their mind. I mean, think about the United States, how you have the first great awakening and the second great awakening, and yet we still had slavery, right? It, it just didn't make any sense. And that was a big blind spot that, that the cultural sin was so important to them, they didn't see past it, despite the fact that salvation was being poured out in, a, in an amazing way during that time. Well, you have salvation being poured out in an amazing way in, in the early chapters of Acts, but you had this long-standing cultural sin among Israelites still being perpetrated against each other. You had the Hebraic Jews and you had the Hellenistic Jews, and they didn't like each other, okay? The Hellenistic Jews were the Jews of the diaspora, okay? They are they're spread out all over the world, um, and, you know, they've, they've learned some of the Greek ways. They speak Greek as a language. They often take Greek names, yet they're still going to Jerusalem, so they still identify with the God of Israel. They still keep Torah. But to the Hebraic Jews, who were the native-born to the land of Israel, um, they looked down on them and said they're compromisers, they're sellouts. Who would want to leave the land of promise just so they could go set up a business elsewhere? They're sellouts, right? But then the, um, the uh, uh, Hellenistic Jews looked at the Hebraic ones as they're just narrow-minded fools. You know, we're, we're smarter than them. We've seen more of the world than them. And so both sides didn't like each other. Those prejudices towards each other carry on into the church because it was specifically the Hellenistic widows that were being overlooked in the daily distribution of, of food. Okay, think about it. Widows were extremely vulnerable. Okay? They, they, they can't take care of themselves. So they're depending on the church to take care of them. And the people who are distributing the food left out the Hellenistic widows. Now, it's hard to say that wasn't intentional. Otherwise, it should have been an, an even blend of widows being left out. They just didn't care. Okay, they didn't care. And so they complained about it. Now, kudos to the apostles for saying, let's fix this. Appoint seven men. And the church picks the seven men. And interestingly enough, they pick seven Hellenistic Jews. If you look at all their names, they're Greek. Okay, so that's, that's awesome, right? That, that was a, a great way to deal with this, okay? But this problem, okay, this, this Hebraic versus Hellenistic uh, culture clash still affected the church even apart from that. And here's why. When external pressure came and Saul, who we call Paul, um, was persecuting the church and ravaging the church, it says the whole church was scattered except the apostles. He didn't go after the apostles. He didn't go after the leaders. And what seems to be clear is for the most part, the Hebraic believers weren't really scattered far. They were able to reassemble to Jerusalem. And let me see something real quick. Oops. Okay, so let's see. Oh, this sucks, man. I don't even know if it, uh, let me check uh, sermon audio. Let's see if it even recorded that. Um, okay, webcast live. So currently 26 units. So it is doing that. 
Um, That's still going. Okay, well then let's see what happens if I put this, where was I? But is it showing it here? Okay, there it goes. All right, I gotta go to the right slide. I don't know what happened there. We'll see if this, uh, if this keeps, um, having some, uh, some difficulties with our software here. There's one thing that I have to click because my remote, whenever it shuts down like that, the remote stops working. Um, so if you hear me rambling, it's just because I'm troubleshooting a couple things real quick. Okay, now it should be good. Let me see. There we go. All right, so continuing with this, let me go to the slide that I'm on. All right, so getting back to this. Run right here. Okay, yeah. So again, they go straight after the Hellenistic Jews is my point. Um, when, uh, when the persecution was happening, and so they're the ones who get scattered. Now, God's going to use that to bring the church outside of Jerusalem. And, and it's actually the result ends up being good. Um, and it'll pave the way later. It'll be like a bridge to Gentile inclusion. But, you know, it speaks volumes that the Hebraic Jews in Jerusalem, for the most part, are left alone and the Hellenists get persecuted. And, you know, you don't ever really see anything written about it. And so... I don't know. All I know is when you look at the book of Acts after this, every time they step foot in the Jerusalem church, it's way more Hebraic Jewish than anything else. Like in Acts chapter 15, you got Pharisees that are part of the church, which is very interesting. And then in Acts chapter 21, again, people zealous for the law who um, are upset at rumors about Paul that weren't even true. And so, again, there was a consequence of what happens to that Jerusalem church. But at the same time, this paves the way um, for other other churches to be planted. Now, a couple more things about Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. There are some interpretive issues. Uh, both the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox try to use this passage to support their notion of apostolic succession. If you don't know what apostolic succession is, it's the idea that the apostles ordained people by laying hands on them and they then passed on their authority, that hence apostolic succession. Then those people later before they die, they lay their hands on someone, and then so on and so on and so on. And so the only people who could be uh, priests or bishops, pastors, you know, even though they weren't using that terminology, was gonna be those who had their hands laid on them by somebody who had their hands laid on them by somebody who had their hands laid on them by an apostle, okay? So pretty much this is the way that they try to say the Protestant uh, church um, isn't a legitimate church because we don't have apostolic succession. You know, Luther, um, and, and, you know, he was uh, excommunicated from the church, so anybody he ordained uh, wasn't going to count. He didn't have the apostolic succession. Uh, and, and so you don't find that anywhere in the Bible, right? But they'll say, no, you find it right here. You have the seven men, the apostles lay their hands on them. Boom, there it is. 
but that is an overstatement of overstatements. In, in fact, when you look at the details of the text, it's, it's the exact opposite. Okay, the church is the one, the apostles say, you guys pick seven men. And then the church did pick the seven men, right? So it was the church that picked the leaders, and then all the apostles did was lay their hands on them for the ordination. All they did was set them apart for the ministry that was set up, and again, it was the people picked by the church. That follows the evangelical model, not the Roman Catholic model, not the Eastern Orthodox model. They are abusing that text and making it say something it does not say. There's nothing there that indicates that this now becomes a transfer of authority that gets passed on to the next generation and so on. This is just people being called for a task, ordained for the task, and the way that they are chosen is not by the fiat of the apostles, but actually by the recognition of the believers in the church. And so really the way it works is if you're called to ministry, you have an internal call, but the church will recognize it you know, because you got these gifts, you're doing this service, and then eventually the church tells the, those who already are ordained that these are, the, these are the guys appointed to ministry. It's obvious. The leaders then test them, and then they ordain them. That's the evangelical model. Now, one more thing about Acts chapter 6 before I move on is it also teaches you a little bit about church organization and church leaders. The apostles ran the risk of spending too much time waiting on tables, and had they done that, they would not have been able to... Um, uh, pretty much dedicate themselves to the Word of God and to prayer, which they said is their priority. That was their primary call, and it would be neglected. And it makes sense. Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, says that God gave the church, Jesus gave the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers to do what? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That means the saints are the ones who are supposed to do the work of the ministry. Our job as pastors is to train you to do the work of the ministry. The American model, unfortunately, has it does the opposite. Pastors show up, they do the work of the ministry, the members just spectate, and they feel like their tithes are paying for these guys to do the ministry while they spectate. And that's not the way it works. What we're supposed to do is equip you. You're all supposed to do all the work of the ministry. And then what happens is, is what the church is able to do expands, okay? That's how it's supposed to be. Um, you know, I think a lot of American Christians think of it like a cruise ship. You're just there to get fat and fed by a bunch of servants who are doing everything for you because you paid for your ticket. But the church is really a battleship where all hands are on deck. Everybody's a, a sailor. Everybody's got something to do because we're in, we're in a, a spiritual war. And so, of course, it's the job of the NCOs and the officers to train to make sure all those, uh, those uh, naval personnel are able to, to do the task at hand. It, it's the same thing with the church. And so Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7 shows that. Okay, Authority was delegated so that tasks could get done. Jesus, if you study the way he did ministry, only 25% was to the crowds. The other 75% was him investing in his guys, who then become the people we're talking about in the book of Acts. Okay, so we see the principle in Acts chapter 6. Uh, the seven were chosen to do the work of the ministry, to free up the apostles, um, to teach, shepherd, and equip the saints. And then, of course, even Stephen, he was uh, given this task, but he also was a gifted teacher as well, and he'll go on to teach. Philip will go on to evangelize. And so this is all just, this is the way it works. Okay, so with that said, let me talk about the early spread of the church. We know that big persecution comes in Acts chapter 8 after Stephen gets killed. Um, and by the way, something that I, I forgot to mention, 
Um, there's a re another reason they targeted the Hellenistic believers is because Stephen was Hellenistic and Acts tells us he was meeting in the synagogues uh, in Jerusalem that were filled with the Hellenistic Jews. That's where he was preaching the gospel. And so that's where the attack was targeted. Just wanted to say that before I forgot. But anyhow, Stephen gets killed. Paul gets uh, appointed by the, the leaders in Jerusalem to go after the church with the vengeance. So the church scatters, and this tells us how the church spreads in that time. In Acts chapter 8, verses 5 through 6, um, Philip is going to go to Samaria, and you're going to have the church now reach Samaritans. Now, if you remember, the Samaritans were enemies of the Jews. When I talked about this in the um, intertestamental lectures, the Samaritans were like half-breeds, um, they were a mix between Jews and Gentiles, and at first they were pagan, but then later they set up a counterfeit form of Judaism centered at Mount Gezerim. They had their own Torah or Pentateuch. It's called the Samaritan Pentateuch. And they were uh, acting as if they were the real Jews. They were the real people of God. Okay? And when uh, the Antiochus IV tried to wipe out Judaism, they quickly declared themselves pagans and helped the Greek army kill Jews. And so Jews always were like, you guys are just punks. And then 70 years later, 60 years later or so, um, under uh, Hyrcanus, the Jews then went up to Mount Gerizim, destroyed the Samaritan temple. And so there was bad blood between these, these two. But Philip goes there, preaches, and there's a massive revival. A lot of Samaritans become believers. It even looks like Simon the Sorcerer, or Simon Magus, believes. Of course, it's obvious it wasn't a true faith uh, once Peter and John get there. Now, Peter and John show up to complete the task. And it's kind of interesting because people ask questions. Why did the Holy Spirit not fall on them even though they believed and even got water baptized? But the Holy Spirit did not fall on them. It's because something unique was happening here. Jesus told Peter he would have the keys of the kingdom. That doesn't mean Peter's a pope and that he laid his hands on people in Rome and that authority passed. And then Peter had a unique role. So notice, Peter preaches the sermon in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit falls on the, the Jews. And then Philip preaches the gospel in Samaria, but the Holy Spirit doesn't fall on them. Peter shows up, boom, the Holy Spirit comes. And then in chapter 10, Peter's the one who's sent to the Gentile, Cornelius, and he preaches, and the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius. At that point, the doors are open. That's what keys are for, right? Opening the doors, okay? So Peter, it's through him that the Holy Spirit is poured out on the Jews poured out on the Samaritans, which are half Jew, half Gentile, and then poured out on the Gentiles with Cornelius. Interesting in, interestingly enough, after Peter does that to Cornelius, he disappears from the pages of Acts for the most part. He only has one more big event. And then it turns over to Paul, who's taken the gospel to the ends of the earth. Okay, So that's how the spread happens. And that's why the event happens the way it does in Acts chapter 8. Now, after Peter goes there and finishes what Philip started, Philip gets taken uh, by God, and he's called to preach to this Ethiopian eunuch. Um, and he preaches the gospel to him through the scroll of Isaiah, and that Ethiopian eunuch becomes really the first Gentile that we know of to be saved. A couple chapters later, Cornelius will be the next Gentile um, when Peter goes to him. Um, and, and so they're both God-fearers. I was mentioning in the intertestamental lecture that you had these Gentiles who rejected their paganism, they believed in the God of Israel, and so they associated themselves with the synagogues, but they weren't Jews because they wouldn't get circumcised. Um, 
And so we, we have, uh, so that both Cornelius and the Ethiopian eunuch were that. Uh, one more thing, theologically to say, you have Acts recording to us the salvation of these people groups, Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles. But sandwiched in between that, you do have the salvation of three people, the Ethiopian, Paul, and Cornelius. And it's interesting if you pay attention to these three. The Ethiopian is a descendant of Ham, Paul is a descendant of Shem, and Cornelius would be a descendant of Japheth. And what Luke is showing us is before the gospel starts going out to all the world, it's forecasting in these three salvations that the nations, which all came from Noah's three sons, the gospel's now going to go and save people from all the nations. And it's forecast by the salvation of those three people. Anyhow, all that, especially with Cornelius, brings us up to around the year 45. Everything's going to change, and Luke is now going to focus on Paul and the mission to the Gentiles. Now, you have to understand that the church was centered in Jerusalem, but it expands, and by the time you get to Acts chapter 11, you get another big church that's going to become a type of center called Antioch, Antioch of Syria. And this is going to be the church that launches the missions to the rest of the Gentile world. It is the gateway to the world. Okay, Antioch is a very important church. Now, Jerusalem was still going to be the, the, the center until it gets destroyed in the year 70. But Antioch was the staging point for all the, the major missions. It's at Antioch that we're first called Christians, right? And the world called us Christians. It was a, a derogatory term, it meant little Christ followers. Um, and, you know, because, again, the Christians were seeing themselves as an extension of Judaism. But a lot of Jews were upset and were rejecting it, especially as Gentiles were coming into the faith in Antioch. So the Gentiles were like, well, they're not Jews, but then they're not Gentiles anymore, so they just called us Christians. And again, it was an insult. Now, a couple decades later, it won't be an insult anymore because Peter says, if you are shamed for being a Christian, it's, it's a good thing now. So we could take that term and we could own it. But I will tell you this. I think there's more wisdom in referring to ourselves more often as believers and disciples because that's the Bible's actual preferred word for us. And, it, and it's what we call ourselves. It wasn't something necessarily imposed on us by the outside. Now, again, Christian's a fine term, but one problem with it in our day is it's lost its meaning. You know, anybody born in a Christian family says they're a Christian. You know, and then in our society they say, well, are you a Christian or a born-again Christian? There's no difference, okay? So the word Christian isn't precise enough to the average person in, in America. Now, maybe one day it'll get there as, as hostility keeps um, being thrown our way, but um, a lot of times you have to explain what you mean by Christian. And so that's why believer, disciple, um, those tend to be more helpful labels at times. Um, so when Jerusalem, I, I mentioned that Jerusalem was the center until it got destroyed. After it got destroyed, Antioch became the center city of the church, and then eventually it would compete with Alexandria, then eventually Rome and Constantinople. And so I just say all that, and we're going to go over that in more detail as we go through church history. But the Roman Catholic narrative that it's always been Rome is just not true. It's not, and any honest historian will tell you that. So continuing with the ministry of Paul, he comes to Christ as early as 33, as late as 35, um, you know, uh, 80, 33 or 35. And his first 10 years as a Christian, we know very little about. 
Um, you know, in fact, Barnabas goes and seeks him out in chapter 11 when there's this big movement at Antioch. That's 10 years later. And the Greek implies that Barnabas had a hard time finding Paul. Um, so the focus was on Peter and John and what they were doing. And so during this time, it's kind of quiet about Paul. And so if you have this impression that Paul gets saved and he immediately jumps into, into things, it's not necessarily true. In Galatians, Paul tells us that he had a preparation time as well, you know, with, with Christ. And he's going back and forth between Damascus and, uh, and uh, you know, Arabia. And, uh, and then eventually, yes, he will be unleashed. Um, but, yeah, he had to be adequately prepared first, just like the other apostles. And one thing that's worth noting is the parallel between Peter and Paul. And the reason why they're so parallel in the book of Acts is they're both, um, it's those two that are um, foundational for like Peter to the Jews, Paul to the Gentiles. And here's what I mean. Peter preaches his first big sermon um, and multitudes get saved. Paul preaches his in Acts 13, multitudes get saved. Uh, Peter heals a man born lame. Paul then heals a man born lame. I mean, these happen just chapters apart. Um, so, so you have that happen. Peter raises someone from the dead, Dorcas um, or Tabitha. don't recommend you name your daughter Dorcas in our culture, but, um, but pretty much Peter raises Dorcas from the dead. And then Paul raises Eutychus, who he preached so long, Eutychus fell asleep, fell out a window and died. One of the funniest stories. But uh, Paul ends up um, resurrecting him. Then you have Peter, his shadow falls on people and they get healed. Paul, his sweat rag, if they touch it, they get healed. And so the point is, these two apostles, God did things through them that were mightier than the other apostles. Why these two? Again, because Peter was the pillar to bring the church to the Jews, and Paul was the pillar to bring it to the Gentiles. And since the church is supposed to be a single body of Jew and Gentile together, it makes sense that the respective apostles that were focusing on their groups would be given these abilities that are unmatched uh, by anybody else. It shows the equality. Let's put it this way. It shows the equality between Jew and Gentile when the main apostles sent to each of them have equal abilities and powers and, and, and uh, do these magnificent um, miracles. Now, continuing with Paul, uh, he begins his missionary work with Barnabas um, and John Mark. And it's kind of interesting that in Antioch, they lay their hands on Paul. So there's these other elders. He's an apostle. They're elders. And they lay their hands on him to send him and Barnabas, which again, apostolic succession goes out the window when you've got non-apostles laying their hands on an apostle to commission him for these missions. But anyhow, it's out of Antioch. He gets sent. Um, the missions get supported and financed by Antioch. Every time Paul comes back from the missionary journey, he comes back to Antioch and reports. And so um, that gives us a, a biblical model of how missions are supposed to be done. Um, and, and the interesting thing is, look, as Paul is bringing the gospel to new places, he goes to the synagogue first, you know, because, again, he didn't believe he was preaching a new religion. Instead, he was announcing the fulfillment of the promises. And since they've been fulfilled, since we're in the beginning of the perfect age to come, the Gentiles are invited to share in that. That's why he would go to the synagogues, because they got the Jews. He could announce the fulfillment to them first. But then you have the God-fearers who were in the synagogue sitting in the back, and he could say, hey, it's for you too, and you don't have to be circumcised. And then through them, they could then preach to the pagan Gentiles outside of the synagogue, okay? Now, early in Paul's ministry, 
his, his ministry was so successful among the Gentiles, so many churches get planted, that this is going to create an existential crisis for the church. And what I mean by that is in the year 49, there's going to have to be a council, the first ecumenical council, where all the main leaders show up in Jerusalem to really make a decision about Gentile inclusion in the people of God. Genesis 17 makes it clear that circumcision is an eternal, everlasting part of the covenant. And yet Paul's saying these guys don't have to be circumcised. These Gentiles don't. Don't force it on them. You had some people from Jerusalem saying, no, they have to be circumcised. And so they had to decide this. Are they under Torah? Do they have to be Torah observant or not? Particularly speaking about the Gentiles. If you want a good idea of the controversy, just read the book of Galatians. That's where Paul is dealing with it. Um, and so James, the brother of the Lord, is going to preside over this council. And what they ultimately determined through the Holy Spirit is Gentiles did not have to be Torah observant. They didn't have to get circumcised. They didn't have to keep Shabbat or Sabbath. And the reason for that is Peter first brings up that when, he, when God saved Cornelius, the Holy Spirit fell on them while uncircumcised, even while unbaptized. You know, and then Paul and Barnabas are saying this. Same thing happened when they were preaching among Gentiles. So if God is saving them apart from circumcision, they don't have to be circumcised. Okay, if they have to be circumcised and they have to keep Torah, then in a sense, the nations, the Gentiles have to become Jewish. And you know, you don't have a body of Jew and Gentile. You just have a body of a whole bunch of Jews because Gentiles are becoming Jews. If the church is going to be Jew and nations, Israel and the nations together in one body, the nations have to be able to stay the nations and Israel has to be able to stay Israel. That's the only way it works. And so a letter is sent out to the Gentile churches saying, listen, you don't have to be Torah observant. But in Acts chapter 21, James makes it clear to Paul that the expectation of Jewish believers is they do still keep Sabbath and circumcision and all that. And I know that runs against the grain of what a lot of Christians teach, but the Jews were not supposed to give up their being Jewish. That's supersessionism. That's replacement theology. And it simply is not biblical. Okay. How can you tell that you have Jews and Gentiles in one body? If you can look at them and still tell they're Jews and Gentiles. If Jews stop being Jews, they're in effect becoming Gentiles. And you have a Gentile church. If Gentiles stop being Gentiles and become Jewish, then you only have a Jewish church. And so the point is Jews be Jews, Gentiles be Gentiles is what it is. And the one thing that brings us all in is faith, okay? Faith in Christ. Now, continuing with this, um, continuing with, with Paul, in the course of his career, he's going to have his great missionary journeys, three of them. Um, he comes back after doing all uh, preaching throughout Asia Minor. Um, he gets arrested in Jerusalem, almost gets killed, but then that becomes his ticket to get to Rome. He, he requests trial by Caesar. And he probably got to stand before Nero and make his case, which would be preaching the gospel. He's saying, this is why I'm arrested. I believe in Jesus. And Nero likely acquitted him in early 64. Now, tradition would indicate that Paul gets arrested again in 67, and that's when he gets killed. He gets uh, beheaded. Um, you know, Emperor Nero um, will order his execution, and Paul alludes to this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. It's clear what he writes there is after having a death sentence put on him. You know, he's like, all right, I'm about to die. You know, um, I finished the race. 
Uh, so, so that's what's going on there. Um, Peter likely was killed late 64 after Nero went nuts. And so, uh, and, and just a little bit about that. Nero, um, when he first became emperor, was a really good emperor and nice and people liked him. But something happened in 64 where he just flipped, um, where he, he became just savage. He kicked his own mother to death. Um, just a, a very insane guy. And so at some point in that time, Peter gets crucified upside down. Uh, later, when Paul gets executed, they can't crucify him because he's a Roman citizen. So they have to behead him. Nero does one of the first major persecutions against the church. It's not empire-wide, but, uh, but pretty much what, what happened was Nero wanted to level a certain part of Rome and uh, rebuild something that he wanted. And so he, the rumor is he set a fire. Now, they didn't have firefighters back then, so the fire got out of hand and burned most of the city down and killed a lot of people. So when people started suspecting Nero for it, he needed a scapegoat, and he blamed the Christians and got everybody riled up against the Christians. And so they were thrown in the Colosseum, killed by gladiators, ripped apart by animals. And then the mo one of the most heinous things was a lot of Christians were taken all throughout the night, and they were put on the sides of the roads and lit on fire um, when they were alive just to keep the, the roads illuminated. And Nero would even have a bunch of them brought into his, his palace yard and have them set on fire at night, and he'd play the fiddle while they were burning. Um, so a lot of this comes from Tacitus, the Roman historian, Suetonius, and, and Dio Cassius. Um, just to, it, it, it was crazy. It was absolutely crazy. Um, so, yeah, you, these, this is a very significant event, the death of Peter and Paul. Um, and then just one more thing to say is that they're not the only ones spread in the faith all over the world. There's a lot of unnamed missionaries, merchants, soldiers, slaves, people moving around. And when they move around, they bring the gospel with them, okay? And so that covers Peter and Paul. Let's quickly talk about the other apostles. In Acts, you get the impression that Peter and Paul were the only missionary apostles. Um, they're merely the focus, okay, because they're the pillars, Peter to the Jews, Paul to the Gentiles. But we, when we rely on church tradition, we know what happened to the other apostles. Thomas went to Parthia and then India. Mark went to Egypt, Matthew to Ethiopia, Bartholomew to Upper India, Andrew to Scythia, and uh, John to Asia Minor. Uh, different traditions mix it up a bit. Um, and so there's, a, there's ways where you could weigh the claims against each other. By the time you get to the third century, some of the more established churches in bigger cities tried to say they were founded by an apostle because it gives them more like street cred. Um, and so one way that historians judge the validity of these traditions is, are there multiple attestations? Meaning, is it just that city saying it or are other cities and other writers saying, yeah, an apostle founded that one? That helps, right? And, and then if a tradition's earlier, that helps. If it could be squared away with external evidence, that helps. Like there's a later tradition that says Thomas made it all the way to India during the reign of a particular king. Well, later they found inscriptions of the name of that king that dates to that time. And so that gives a good um, indication that at least the tradition itself that Thomas made it that far is, is true. Now, the two main events that get the rest of the apostles out of the Holy Land is going to be the death of Peter and Paul. Okay, so now they got to pick up the mantle and the destruction of Jerusalem that comes as a result of the Jewish revolt. And so I want to talk about the Jewish revolt. Oh, before I do that, also let me talk about the death of James, the brother of the Lord. He dies a couple years before Peter. 
It's kind of interesting. He was the leader of the Jerusalem church, as I mentioned, and the Pharisees liked him. But the high priest was jealous of him, ordered his execution, and um, he was thrown off the temple pinnacle and, and died. And yet the Pharisees objected, but the high priest still had it done anyway. But getting to the, the Jewish revolt, um, well, actually, let me first state that we're moving to the third section of this lesson. So we talked about the year 30 to 45, and now 45 to 67, with the deaths of Peter and Paul, now it's 67 to 100 to finish out the century. We don't know a lot on this period because it's written that what happens is after Acts is done being written and before church histories start getting written. But we do know some things for certain. John wrote his letters and Revelation during that time. Um, he wrote his gospel during that time as well. Um, and you have uh, Josephus writing about what was happening during that time. So here's one big thing we know for certain. In the year 66, Jewish zealots are able to convince uh, most of the Jews to revolt against Rome in, uh, in, in Israel. And so they assassinate a governor, if I remember right. They ex kill a bunch of Roman soldiers and they kind of expel them out of the main parts of Israel. So Emperor Nero sends his armies there under Vespasian to crush this revolt. Now, in the midst of this war, Nero kills himself. He takes a sword and plunges it through his chin and and dies by a self-inflicted wound. And so Vespasian sees this as a chance to be the emperor himself. So he withdraws from Israel and his soldiers with him. And so he goes back to secure himself as the emperor. The Jews considered this divine deliverance, and it was proof that the zealots were right. But were they ever wrong? Because Vespasian secures his throne and then sends his son, General Titus, to finish the job. And in the process, Titus conquers every city of Israel um, Josephus says that he killed up to 1.1 million Jews. Um, that is Holocaust-level stuff, if, if you think about it, for the, the world population of that time. Um, the Jews are dragged off into exile, um, just pretty much dragged out of Israel. Jerusalem's burned to the ground, and for the temple, every stone was cast down from each other, just like Jesus said it would be, uh, in part because the fires that burned Jerusalem melted the gold, and the gold then slipped in between the cracks of the stones of the temple. And so the Romans wanted that gold. So they removed every stone so that they could get it. Um, and so, yeah, this was a, a, a pretty awful event. And, and the pictures up there, um, it shows two uh, coins from Jerusalem um, celebrating the Jewish revolt. The pick, middle picture is an actual Roman stone relief in Rome, um, more or less celebrating the victory over the Jews. And you could see what they're carrying away the giant golden menorah. Um, so now some people believe the Vatican still has that menorah and are holding out on Israel. It'd be interesting if they did, because then you'd have this 2,500-year-old solid gold menorah. That'd be awesome. But who knows if we'll ever find out. Okay, so the consequences of the Jewish revolt on the church. This has far greater effect on the future of Christianity than even the deaths of Peter and Paul. Um, both Judaism and Christianity lost their spiritual home, Jerusalem. Um, they ceased to, and so Jerusalem ceased to have any uh, significance in the life of the early church for the next 300 years. And so this will lead to the church really divorcing itself from most things Jewish. Jewish Christians were viewed as traitors in Jewish eyes because Jesus said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, flee to the mountains, and they did. They followed a relative of Jesus named Simon 
to a place called Pella, east of the Jordan. Eventually, the Romans tracked them down and killed Simon because they didn't want anybody alive um, who was a descendant of David. They went after as many as they could, so they ended up killing Simon. But the fact that the, the Jewish Christians fled Jerusalem because Jesus told them to, the rest of the Jews said, you are traitors. We want nothing to do with you. So now they're spurned from Jews in general, okay? And, uh, and then the Gentile Christians um, also are moving further and further away from their Jewish roots. And then one of the big results of this was the Pharisees became the sole heirs of Judaism. The Sadducees, no point for them anymore. There's no temple. The Essenes wiped out because they joined with the Zealots. Uh, the Zealots wiped out because they started the war. All that was left was the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were the most anti-Jesus of the Jewish uh, groups at that time. And as a result of that, they're the ones who got to define Judaism, and they're the ones who founded Rabbinic Judaism. Um, and it was founded from the get-go in opposition to Christianity. They met in the year uh, 90 at ja uh, Javna, or Yavna, which is Jamnia, is what we call it. Um, and there they set up their liturgy. In their liturgy, they have an opening prayer that starts off with the curse of Christians, of the Nazarenes, as the, the Menim, heretics. And so pretty much no Jewish Christian could ever go in a synagogue again. And to this day, we are still considered to be non-Jewish. The crazy thing is they will accept Wiccans, Buddhists, atheists, and even Muslims. They'll still accept them as Jews if they have a Jewish lineage. But if you follow Jesus, they're like, nope, you're not even a Jew. And that goes back to Yavna. That goes back to what the Pharisees decided there. Now, praise be to God, they don't get to decide who a Jew is. Um, so forget them. <laughs> but, but anyhow, you have the, from this point on, this Jewish revolt causes the forever, well, not forever, but it caused the almost 2,000-year rift and parting of ways between Judaism and Christianity. They were the same thing. There was an overlap between Christianity and Judaism until Jerusalem was destroyed. And then from there, Christianity became Christianity, very distinctly Gentile, and Judaism became Judaism, and it was, you know, it just kept doubling down on these traditions of the Pharisees and the rabbis and so forth, and so it goes in its, uh, in its own way. Now, I think providentially God used that to keep Jewish identity intact for 2,000 years of being dispersed and exiled, um, and, and now Christians in larger numbers are recognizing the Jewish roots and they're swinging back this way and it might make it easier for more Jews to come in and we'll get an overlap like we had in the first century. That would be nice, you know, of, of, of Jews who believe in Jesus and Gentiles who believe in Jesus being part of one church but not being absorbed into each other where they lose their unique identities that God gave to them. Uh, another consequence is being cut off from uh, the, the synagogues and uh, we've been cut off from the synagogues. The, the Jewish church back then was isolated. And so they're going to dwindle into nothing. Um, and then the Gentile churches, sadly, were becoming more anti-Judaic, even anti-Semitic. And when they become uh, the political, when they get the political power of the Roman Empire, they're going to definitely make life difficult for Jews. Now, moving on from that. So that is probably the big significant event. Um, that happens from 67 to 100. I do want to say that John the Apostle is alive during this time. He moves to Ephesus. He establishes a very successful ministry there. That's why Jesus has him write to the seven big churches of that region in the book of Revelation. 
When you get to the reign of Domitian, Domitian begins the first empire-wide persecution, and that is when John gets exiled to Patmos, and that's where Jesus then delivers to him the final piece of Revelation. Um, and, it's, and that's the book of Revelation in chapter 22, ends on a very similar note to how Genesis 1 starts. And so God is going to restore all things. Now, for the rest of the apostles, what happened to them, we only know from tradition. We do have a first century writing from Clement of Rome, who was a, a leader of the Roman church in the late first century. And he's the first witness that tells us about Peter and Paul dying in the city of Rome. Um, so we do learn a, a little bit there. So before we conclude, there's just one question we got to answer, and then we'll be done. How far does the church expand by the time you get to the year 100? It went as far west as it could, England. We know it hit England in the first century. We just don't know how. Um, some say Paul made it that far. We can't prove it. But we do know that Paul converted soldiers who were chained to him, and soldiers got reassigned uh, just like our military soldiers do. And so that's the most... That's the prevailing theory of how Christianity made it to Rome. A few centuries later, when the Roman Catholic form of Christianity goes over to Britannia, they find that there was already a more primitive Christianity there, and it had been there since the first century. Sadly, they convert that Christianity into their Roman corruption. Um, but yeah, so Christianity in the first century did make it to England. It, um, it, we also know from Acts chapter 2, it made it to Iran, the Parthian Empire. Um, and if we accept what the tradition says, then we also know that, uh, that you had some apostles make it as far south into Africa as Ethiopia. Ethiopia is not, like, I mean, that's a, quite a ways south of Egypt, you know. So they made it to Ethiopia. They made it as far east as India. Um, they made it as, uh, as far north as Russia because Scythia would be the bottom part of Russia. And so if we take that all seriously then the borders of where the church was by 100, the year 100, is the size of Alexander's empire and the Roman empire combined. So bigger than the two biggest empires in history. Now, it doesn't mean there's Christians all over there, but it means the gospel spread to uh, pretty much a distance beyond any human empire, even by the end of the first century. Okay, and so that's pretty cool. And what we have is we have the job of finishing the task. So in conclusion, the early church had phenomenal growth as the apostles were led by the Holy Spirit. The church um, began with Judaism. It spread to the Gentiles. And so what you had is uh, by the end of the first century, the God of Israel was being worshipped and praised by Jews, Romans, Greeks, Persians, Arabs, Celts, and numerous other groups. Jesus Christ truly did begin a new era that led to people of God existing from many nations, tribes, and tongues. It was the start of Revelation chapter 7 uh, being fulfilled. And so it's due to the work of the early church that any of us in this class are Christians at all. Uh, thanks be to God for that. And so next time we will continue. Um, but that's all I got for today.